Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 32 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, just a few notes. The views expressed on my podcast are my own and do not reflect the official position or policy of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out at authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast and want me to keep it up, I sure hope you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash Natasha Bajma. My personal update for this week, so I just finished the first draft of my new novel, Rescind Order. This is a techno-drama set in the future about the threat of nuclear weapons and artificial intelligence. For my next project, I'll be working on a related uh, story. This one is a dark comedy stage play entitled American's Doomsday, and it will be based on some of the things that I discovered uh, while writing Rescind Order. Um, but Rescind Order is more of a serious kind of uh, thriller-like novel, um, whereas the stage play is going to really demonstrate some of the absurdities of um, the intersection between nuclear weapons and artificial intelligence. My headline for this week is about the coronavirus outbreak. Um, it's on a lot of people's minds. It's on my mind. I'm about to travel this coming week. Um, and uh, there's a pretty decent article um, put out today um, on Vox.com called Eight Questions About the Coronavirus Answered. Um, there's a lot of misinformation about what's going on spreading around. So I encourage you to look at reputable sources. Um, I like Vox because it often um, identifies things very in, in lay terms. Um, but just, just a few facts um, from my readings. The coronavirus outbreak began in Wuhan, China in late 2019. The first case uh, was discovered in the United States, I think, on January 21, so not very long ago. There are already more than 14,000 known cases in China as of today, uh, which is staggering. A few facts. So what is the coronavirus? It is a virus, not a bacteria, so that means antibiotics don't work. Um, This virus spread from animals to humans. Um, and it causes a respiratory infection. The symptoms range from common cold symptoms to severe pneumonia and generally starts with a fever, cough, and shortness of breath. But that is, uh, these, those, those are symptoms for a lot of different illnesses. So some of the interesting things coming out of the data is there's a lower death rate than SARS, um, but it appears to be spreading a lot more quickly. Uh, The disease spreads from exposure to droplets, so you do have to be exposed to someone who has it through sneezing or coughing, and it seems to always already also be able to spread before symptoms are present, Um, so that's an interesting aspect here. Wash, wash, wash your hands. Both the CDC and the State Department have issued their highest travel alerts for China, um, so stay away from China for now. The World Health Organization has declared the outbreak a global health emergency. Um, 
The risk to public health, however, in the United States is considered fairly low. In fact, you know, seasonal uh, flu is probably uh, more risky at this point. So go get your flu shots. One thing that I found interesting as I was reading about the coronavirus, and this relates to how fast it's spreading, is something we call the r naught number or the reproduction number. This is a way to measure how contagious um, an infectious disease is, and it really is the average number of people who will catch the disease from one contagious person. So if the r naught is 1, that means for every contagious person, another person will catch it. Um, and this r naught number is, is, depends on some objective but also subjective um, uh, features. Uh, incubation period of the disease, um, contact rate, so how much um, the person who is contagious is coming into contact with others, um, but it also involves the level of public health preparedness in a particular country. So not that's not related to the disease, it's more related to um, the resilience of the public health system. So the reproduction number for the 2019 coronavirus appears to currently be 1.4 to 3.3, and that's an estimate at this time. I'm sure that we'll get um, a finer detail later. And that's pretty significant, especially the higher range of that number, because the r naught number, the reproduction number for Ebola is two, right? So if it ends up being around three, then really that's for every contagious person, three additional cases will be caused. So you can see how this is spreading so quickly. But just to give you kind of a a measure, measles has a, a reproduction number of some anywhere between 11 and 18. And we do know that there are a lot of people in this country who have um, decided not to vaccinate their children against measles, despite how contagious that is. So there's a really interesting um, graphic put out by Vox that shows this comparison. Um, I'm going to include the quid, uh, Twitter tweet. Sorry, I'm all tongue twisted today. The um, tweet from Twitter uh, in the show notes, as well as a link to uh, a description of what is the reproduction number. All right, let's go to my interview where I am talking to actually an expert in public health preparedness, um, Dr. Saskia Popescu. We talk about outbreaks, we talk about antimicrobial resistance, we talk about SARS and MERS, but I recorded the interview in December before the coronavirus outbreak. I hate to be so timely, but there you go. So let's go to the interview now. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. Today I'm talking to Dr. Saskia Popescu. She has a PhD in biodefense from George Mason University. She's an expert on infectious diseases, bioterrorism, public health preparedness, and emerging infectious diseases. She is currently a senior infection preventionist at Honor Health. Saskia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you about microorganisms and all the crazy stuff we do with them. <laughs> Ooh, microorganisms. So I think my first question for you, because I think people might be wondering, is what is an infection preventionist? So an infection preventionist, or an IP as we're commonly referred to, um, we are responsible for trying to keep the patients and the healthcare workers safe during medical care. So whether that is preventing a patient from coming in and getting an infection related to a medical device, or a healthcare worker from picking up you know, a drug-resistant organism because the patient wasn't properly isolated. So we do a multitude of different things from sterilization and disinfection um, reviews to communicable disease reporting 
And over the years, that role's kind of expanded to really include a lot of emergency preparedness, which we definitely saw with the Ebola outbreak um, in 2014 and the cases in Dallas, Texas. So if you deal with infectious diseases in healthcare, you're likely dealing with an uh, (laughs) infection preventionist. So do you work in a hospital? Um, Tell us basically, where's your daily life as as an infection preventionist? (laughs) Yeah, so it changes all the time. Most of the time, we're really doing a lot of infectious disease surveillance. So that means reviewing patient charts and medical records through their microbiology reports. And that's a way for us to pick on, um, pick up if there are any infections that have occurred. So we can either isolate the patient appropriately or um, do mandated reporting, actually, because hospitals are required to report healthcare-associated infections, or at least a handful of them, to the CDC. So we do that as part of our job. We also do rounding. So I go up on the units and I work with healthcare workers. I talk to patients and their families even to make sure isolation is properly done so that if a patient comes in with a, you know, an infectious disease, we don't spread it while they're there. Um, and it, it totally changes. Sometimes there's a massive flood on a unit and I have to go up and make sure that we're containing it appropriately and it doesn't expose, you know, patients and staff to some weird mold. Um, you know, it, it's 100% different every single day. You'd be surprised, especially during flu season. We have a lot of craziness that goes on. If you're having to move patients around, you know, we're making sure that they stay safe. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it changes literally every single day. But a lot of the time, we are dealing with the infectious disease component of healthcare and also public health. We have a we work very closely with public health to communicate to them if we have patients that come in with certain diseases and provide information so that they can deal with it when the patient gets out of the hospital. So you mentioned isolation, infectious diseases, containment, all of these words basically to me are like a horror film. How did you get (laughs) interested in infectious diseases? Oh, um, I've always been kind of in love with germs for some reason. And when I was a kid, my stepmom on a trip actually gave me the hot zone. And I read it and just fell in love with the concept of trying to battle bugs and, you know, especially rare diseases like Ebola. And as I got older, I really figured out what that meant in terms of, you know, really preventing infectious diseases from spreading in different environments. And that kind of led me to hospitals because believe it or not and I pro- you know it's something we don't like to advertise but hospitals are super big hubs for diseases to be spread you know we can amplify diseases during outbreaks we saw this with SARS in Toronto um, you know it's and it's just it's a right place for that so I kind of decided hey I really like biodefense I like the notion of defending against biological organisms whether they are intentionally spread through terrorism or you know, just a naturally occurring outbreak. So I kind of fell into it and just, you know, molded it over the years. (laughs) That's awesome. I love that you um, read a work of fiction and got interested in an area. Uh, For me, it was a little bit similar. Um, The first time I was interested in nuclear was because I watched the movie China Syndrome, which was in the 1980s, a scary movie about a meltdown of a nuclear power plant. That was kind of the first um, registration for- Oh, I love that. Nuclear for me. Well, you know what's funny- when I was a kid, I told my mom after I read it, I want to be a pathologist. So what did she do? She got me a hazmat suit for Halloween. And I went around as a pathologist, you know, I was like eight or nine at that point. And I was, it was bright yellow. So everybody thought I was an egg yolk, but I just went around with my massive 
um, you know, hazmat suit telling everyone I was going to be a pathologist. Oh my so goodness. Funny that, <laughs> I know I was a nerd from a very, I love your mom age. though. She, she's great. <laughs> I know. Right. That, that's so supportive of her. <laughs> I know she was just like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> so you mentioned, um, hospitals being, um, a place where there's a lot of germs and potential for infection. And it's funny. I just got over a massive sinus infection, which took all of December to finally get my voice Ooh. back to normal. And someone suggested, I think after the first week, you need to go to a doctor. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Do you want to kill me? Do you know that there's germs everywhere in a doctor's office? I'm better off here. <laughs> <laughs> I can't fault you for that. <laughs> I picked up secondary infections by going in for care. Um, and so what, what you do to make sure that that doesn't happen, especially with diseases like Ebola or measles or other, you know, flu or things like that is so incredibly important. Um, and yeah, anyway, so basically this is a little break from my podcast. I've been focused on nuclear weapons for a long, long time. I'm not sure why I I've been focusing so much on nuclear weapons, but bioweapons is another passion of mine. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not excited about disease, but I do, I do, I am fascinated with the notion of using disease um, intentionally. Um, so maybe I'm just sick and twisted. So I thought maybe we'd start with <laughs> the basics to help our um, audience understand um, biological weapons. So I wonder if you start off and tell us what is a biological weapon? So, I mean, it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. We're using, in that case, a biological agent that could be a virus, a bacteria, a fungi, or even a protozoa as a weapon for something like warfare, but it can also be used for a crime or even terrorism. So it's really using these living um, and often replicating pathogens to, to produce fear or harm. So, you know, the bio, bio weapons really have that spectrum of use, whether it's a state sponsored kind of active biological warfare program, which we saw prior to the biological weapons convention in 1972, or even a small bioterrorism event or biocrime event. And those, all of those things happen. So it's really, you know, there's, there's a whole spectrum of how they're used, but it can also, people tend to forget that there's a process or there was programs, I should say, for using them against crops, you know, anti-crops to impact um, an area's agriculture supply. So it's really using pathogens for nefarious purposes. Yeah, so you mentioned virus and bacteria, and I think one of the challenges that, that writers have um, is understanding what is the difference between a virus and a bacterium. Can you tell us that? Yeah, I mean, these are entirely different microorganisms. So really, a virus needs a living cell to host in itself. You know, it needs to get in there. They don't, they can't live really outside of, of the cell. So to me, viruses are, are very complex organisms. And when you look at active biological weapons programs, the goal has always been to use viruses because they tend to create a little bit more damage. But um, bacteria are also more susceptible, if you will, to antimicrobials. So it's just a matter of you know, these different kind of microorganisms that cause disease. But there's also been interest in protozoa. You know, we're talking about like mad cow disease and things like that. But one thing that when you're looking at a microorganism from a bioweapon standpoint is how susceptible is it to a, a medical countermeasure? You know, is it something that can be vaccinated against like a virus or, you know, are there antimicrobials for it like a bacteria? So it really just kind of depends on the organism you're looking at. 
So let's talk about some of those potential pathogens that could be used as weapons. Why don't you just off the top of your head, tell us an, about a number of them, whether they're a virus or a bacteria, and basically some, some basic overview. Yeah, so there's been a lot of different pathogens over the years. Um, I think people don't realize that prior to the Biological Weapons Convention in 1972, we had an active bioweapons program. We had an offensive bioweapons program, just like Russia and the UK and Canada. So I would definitely encourage people to do, you know, read a couple books on them because it's really fascinating to learn what those programs looked like. But they really tried to weaponize everything from anthrax and botulism to like plague and tularemia and smallpox, you know, all these category A agents that we've classified as the potential to do a lot of harm because they can be devastating to a person, but they can also transmit very easily. So there was also efforts to weaponize viral hemorrhagic fevers like Ebola, but also things like brucellosis or Q fever, you know, typhus, um, even uh, staph, um, enterotoxin. So, you know, those viruses that were really harnessing the power of the cell were something that were heavily looked at by a bioweapons programs. But these bugs are, you know, it, it's interesting when you look at biological weapons, they, you know, they can be relatively low in production costs with a high potential impact, but the dispersion mechanisms are really hard because, you know, you might have access to a biological agent, a microorganism, if you will, and be able to grow it in a lab environment. But how do you, you know, really, truly put it out in the environment? How do you um, disperse it? So that's where a lot of these programs really struggled. What struggled wasn't really necessarily getting the organism and growing it. It was really, truly, how do we, you know, spread it, if you will, because you can't just like throw Ebola out in the environment. That's not how it works. <laughs> Um, you know, aerosolization was really a goal for a lot of these organisms, but some of them are too big or too heavy. And once you put something out in the environment, you know, if you try and aerosolize it, think of like a sprayer, like a crop sprayer almost. It becomes extremely sensitive to the environment and it's, it's very tough to do. So some of these pathogens like viruses can be really easy to kill in the environment. Like Ebola is not in a very environmentally hardy organism. It's very easy to kill. But something like anthrax um, in spore form is extremely tough and has a lot of um, environmental hardiness that makes it more preferable, if you will, biological weapon, mm -hmm. because you can put it out in the environment. And it's going to live a really long time in soil. I mean, we have it naturally occurring in the Southwest. So yeah, there's, there's an array of different organisms that exist and have different pros and cons, if that mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, anthrax um, can last in the soil for up to 30 years. In fact, I have a fun story about anthrax. I was in South Africa um, working in the bush um, as part of a um, scientific um, conservation project dealing with leopards. And one of the things we did was go around and collect leopard scat. Yes, folks. I do that every day for my dogs, but this was a little, brought it to a whole new level. And we'd bring it back and we'd analyze the scat for its contents. And um, I decided to not do that because I'm not a really, real fan of that sort of thing. But the other thing was, is we had to wear masks um, to protect us from potential anthrax. And oh, I was yeah. Like, I mean... That's, it it followed scary, me. Bioterrorism bio <laughs> followed me all the way to South Africa. I'm like, oh my goodness. Um, so I think I mean, it's, it's, there's always cases, though, you know, with with people that work with cows a lot of the time. 
So it's, it's definitely some of these organisms are in the environment, which I think is really interesting because when you talk to people about a biological weapon, they think smallpox and Ebola and plague, and they don't even realize that plague, especially for those of us in the Four Corners region, is endemic. I mean, we see cases from time to time, but, you know, so the interesting part to me about biological weapons is that some of them are... Um, really easy to identify as a weapon. You know, smallpox is eradicated, so it's not naturally occurring anymore. So if there was a case of it, the question is going to be, was this an active, you know, weapon situation? Um, they don't provide signatures, so it's hard to identify an attacker. But if it's something like plague or tularemia, which we do see naturally occurring, how do you know if that's an attack or an outbreak, depending on the situation? So it's a, it's a really tough kind of weapon to to deal with because they they can be very secretive. Yeah, and a great, actually great film, Contagion, um, addresses exactly that thing at one point in Contagion. They considered whether is this a natural outbreak or is this um, intentionally caused? And ultimately the response is very similar. So you respond to it no matter what. And then, it, you know, through the investigation, you figure out whether it was uh, spread intentionally or not. Um, but there's one other thing I just wanted to mention for the audience because it's really one of my pet peeves when I read novels or watch movies with biological weapons is that not every uh, pathogen is contagious, meaning transmissible from human to human. So for example, anthrax, um, if, you, if one person has anthrax, you can't get it from them. You have to be exposed to it. So that's another kind of difference across the different diseases like um, uh, plague is also difficult to transmit from human to human, but smallpox, as you know, is incredibly transmissible. Thank you so much for saying that because it drives me nuts when people talk about stuff like that. I've had to do education for healthcare workers and they're like, well, what about an anthrax attack? And I'm just, you know, obviously outside of the, you know, contamination of clothing and things like that. If you have a patient with anthrax, they're not going to spread it to you. That's not how it works. You know, if we have a patient with plague, that's pneumatic plague, then we worry. But it's really, that's the funny part about biological weapons is that there is such a, you know, a Baskin Robbins 31 flavors of things that, that that almost makes preparedness really tough because are you dealing with an organism that really is communicable between people? And if it is, is it super, super contagious and or virulent like smallpox? Or is it something like Ebola that's very virulent, meaning it doesn't take a lot of viral, you know, viral cells or virons to get you sick, but it's super, um, you know, but it's not really contagious. So it, it takes direct contact with blood and bodily fluids. So I yeah. think that's the fascinating part about, you know, biological weapons and microorganisms is they're so different. So you have to be prepared for kind of everything. Yeah, that's a great segue to talk about the Ebola outbreak. So, um, and we were talking about how people don't understand, you know, that not every disease is the same, right? Um, and a lot of people freaked out um, when there was a massive Ebola outbreak in West Africa in 2014. We had two cases um, here in the U.S. because health workers returned from West Africa and they brought it with them. But this, uh, we remember as well, because 28,000 people were infected, about 11,000 people died. So tell us a little bit more about Ebola. What is Ebola? How does it spread? Is it treatable? Yeah, so Ebola is um, a fellow virus, and it's, you know, it has an incubation period of about two to 21 days. So that means from the point of your exposure to the virus to the point where you become symptomatic, it's anywhere from two to 21 days. And the interesting part about Ebola is 
you're actually not infectious until you have symptoms. And those symptoms tend to be, you know, a fever, chills, muscle pain, and then there's a lot of diarrhea and vomiting. And that's when patients tend to become, you know, really risky for healthcare workers, because they are just, you know, they have a lot of fluid that they're getting rid of every day. Diarrhea and vomiting, you know, can be liters upon liters. So the mortality of, of Ebola is changes though. You know, if you look at outbreaks since it was first discovered in 1976, they've typically been in small rural areas um, where the outbreaks have kind of fizzled out because, you know, they were just, it, it burned so hot in a lot of cases. But 2014 outbreak, you know, we saw a mortality rate of 39%. But if you look at like an outbreak in 1995 and 96, and the DRC, it was 81%. So, the mortality of Ebola, you know, people always like to tout the like 90% mortality. Yeah, that can happen in certain outbreaks, but others, it's not, um, that's not the case. Right now, the outbreak in the DRC is, I think, a mortality of about 66%. So, you know, this is a, this is a virus that we don't really have a lot of treatment options for. It's mostly supportive care, which just means keeping the patient hydrated and, you know, doing what we can. There, there were some experimental um, medical options that they used in 2014 and 2016 called ZMAP, but actually in perfect timing, the FDA just approved a new vaccine for Ebola. So that's, that's been rolled out in this current outbreak, but this is a really big game changer. Um, it's called Ervivo. And that, that, I think, you know, this is the first time that we've really been able to, you know, utilize a vaccine for a viral hemorrhagic fever like that. Now, a vaccine, do you have to administer that before you're infected, or is that something that you can do after infection? From what I have read, it's before and after. So they've had some good success, and it's only for people 18 years of age and older. Um, They've had some good success in those with, quote-unquote, delayed vaccination, because the truth is, you know, if you think about an outbreak, the odds are you're never going to get to those, you know, exposed people the day they were exposed. It's going to be within five days or 10 days or something. So you really need a vaccine that can provide some kind of um, protection after the fact. And from what I've understood about this is that it has provided some really good protection for those exposed, I believe up to seven to 10 days. But I think there's a lot more data that's coming out on it. And the mm-hmm. interesting thing to me about Ebola, though, is that, you know, it's, it's transmitted through blood and bodily fluids. So, um, you know, like blood, diarrhea, vomiting, urine, semen, things like that, and, and breast milk. Um, but, you, you know, you can get it with exposure to a contaminated object like a soiled mattress or a medical device. Um, but it's, it's really not as contagious as people realize. You know, when, one of the things we realized when we had cases here in the United States was that it kind of changed the game and how we respond to Ebola, because typically we had had those outbreaks in West Africa, and you have limited medical options there. You know, there's only so much invasive medical procedures that were available just because, you know, they didn't have the resources. But here, you know, when we had um, the patient in Dallas, Texas, Thomas Duncan, and we brought back healthcare workers that were exposed and actually, you know, ended up developing the disease. We found that when you throw in all of these advanced medical options like dialysis, um, intubating a patient, you know, performing 
all kinds of different surgeries, things like, you know, using all of the awesome medical technology and power we have here, it actually increases the risk for the healthcare workers, which isn't totally surprising, but it did raise that question of, can we aerosolize this virus? You know, if we are doing, because that's not normally how it's spread. There was before 2014, the CDC recommendations for healthcare workers dealing with a patient with Ebola were just contact droplet isolation, which is just, you know, awareness of that this is a bloodborne pathogen in most cases and, you know, splatter is an issue. But now when you throw in that we can aerosolize, you know, blood and bodily fluids through these advanced medical practices, it did raise that question of should we be using airborne isolation practices, you know, the use of pappers and, and masks, you know, N95 masks. So, so we told a really fascinating sorry, sorry. one. We talked a little bit about aerosolization. I'm not sure the audience understands what that was. So we talked about it in the context of bioterrorism and, and actually spreading a disease, but now we're talking about it in advanced medical um, tests. Could you tell us what aerosolization is? Yeah, so it's, I mean, some pathogens like tuberculosis are naturally aerosolized when they're coughed out, and that's when they're small and light enough, usually it's less than five microns in size and can float in the air. But when we aerosolize things in healthcare, it's more so we're performing a task on like suctioning a patient or intubating them and inducing coughing and things like that. So, or even cauterizing sometimes in surgery. So there's different kinds of aerosolization, but realistically it's just, you know, create, putting, putting these, um, um, particles in the air, if you will. But the thing is, with a lot of organisms, they're not light enough to actually float in the air. So something like tuberculosis can, um, measles, I'm sorry, yeah, measles and smallpox can, but something like influenza is a little bit bigger of an organism. So it, you know, can float around for three feet and then it drops. So the concern with Ebola was, all right, we know that some medical procedures can aerosolize particles, you know, blood particles, things like that. And while they might not float around in the air, like tuberculosis, they can get up in the air so that you could potentially breathe them in. But there really wasn't enough research about it. And we're still learning about it. Um, if it truly can aerosolize blood or Ebola virons enough that they could, you know, be inhaled and cause disease. So it's, it's one of those risks that, again, you know, comes with certain medical practices, which have been discouraged to a certain extent, but at the same time, you want to save a patient. So if you have to do that, you better make sure you're wearing all the necessary personal protective equipment. That's really interesting. So you're saying that we kind of learned that after the two cases in um, the U.S., the Ebola cases? Well, you know, we haven't had air, airborne transmission, not documented at least. So we don't really know. But when, you know, Thomas Duncan came to Dallas and we were really starting to learn how to manage these patients in regular hospitals, you know, not Emory, not the advanced biocontainment units in Nebraska, very, you know, your frontline neighborhood hospital, what did they need to wear to protect their healthcare workers? And the question then became, is there any chance we could aerosolize this disease? So then people started to worry because there really wasn't a lot of research on it. Um, there's always, of course, you know, when you're talking about an infectious disease, you like to err on the side of caution, say technically there's always a possibility, even if we haven't really been able to see it and document it. So this specific situation and environment really raised all of those questions. Like, what do we do? Should we just err on the side of caution? The same thing happened with waste, you know, and flushing Ebola waste down the toilet. 
that came up with Emory Riddle, do they, you know, technically this virus is really easy to kill and the normal sewage process is going to get rid of it, but do we need to put bleach in there too? So this is, you know, this outbreak that we saw and the cases that came to the United States, whether they were expected or not, really raised all those questions that we hadn't thought of before because we had just never dealt with this disease in the United States before like this. Mm-hmm. So this brings us to another um, topic of preparedness. And one of the reasons I, I'm so excited to talk about this is that as writers, we tend to fo- focus on the sexy topic of, you know, how do we weaponize this agent and spread it around? <laughs> but really, the other side of the coin is if, if, if your target is not prepared to deal with what you're throwing at them, that can be something to play up in your novels. I mean, it's a huge obstacle to um, getting over a bioterrorism attack. So one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit is... Um, uh, recent example, season one, Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan on Amazon. Spoiler, it's season one. If you haven't watched it already, too bad or shut this off. A terrorist group um, uh, makes a group of people sick with Ebola and they send them back to the U.S. to infect other people um, and in hospitals, actually. So this is really on topic. Um, are we, you know, and it doesn't have to be Ebola. It could be uh, another uh, communicable disease. Are we prepared for something like this in the United States? Oh, that feels like such a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yes and no. Um, Leaning more towards no. (laughs) But we've made really good progress. So, I mean, I kind of come at it from the healthcare perspective where um, we're naturally a little bit more like, oh, no, it's it's not going to end well. But, you know, the thing is we have made so much progress, especially since we had the unexpected case of Ebola in Dallas, Texas, and we realized, hey, you know, um, infectious disease threats don't always just, you know, we're not, they're not anticipated all the time. So for something like bioterrorism, we have a lot of things in place over the years, especially since the anthrax attacks in 2001, when there was just a ton of money thrown into biodefense. You know, I think there was like over $60 billion that's been thrown into biodefense since 2001. So you have programs like BioWatch that have, you know, these little detector sensor boxes in major cities that pick up on certain organisms and agents to say, oh, this is not expected here. Maybe this could be an attack. So we need to start, you know, ramping up response measures to BioSense, which is um, syndromic surveillance, and which I actually think is really cool because it harnesses the data from hospitals and urgent cares and some pharmacies and if they're all of a sudden seeing a spike in like weird symptoms for a time of year then it can initiate kind of an early warning system but you know we've done a lot I I tend to really see all of the money that's gone into public health preparedness and increasing lab and surveillance capacities because that was something that we saw you know with Ebola and not to keep going back to it but it was really big wake-up call because if you're dealing with a really unknown or unexpected pathogen do we even have the lab capacity in every state to detect it? Or do we have to send it to the CDC, which we know could have a slow turnaround time potentially. So, you know, answering that question, I think the biggest problem is that it's going to depend on the organism because a lot of our response mechanisms are based around a handful of pathogens. And some of those surveillance mechanisms are, you know, are are limited. So for an example, for something like MERS, which is Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, it's a coronavirus, you know, we still see going on in the UAE right now. Um, and even Ebola, 
our preparedness for that from a healthcare perspective and even public health is based on travel history. So if I, if I don't have, if I have a patient that comes in and doesn't have any relevant travel history to an area where those diseases are present, that's not even going to occur to me in a lot of situations. So if you had a bioterrorist, you know, situation where they use Ebola, that is, a, that's a huge game changer because if all of my early warning systems are based on, hey, had you traveled to the DRC within the last 21 days? And you say, no, I'm not even going to register Ebola as an option. So I think, you know, I think we've made a lot of progress in terms of labs and awareness for the potential for, you know, these relatively um, uncommon pathogens. But you know what? Some of them are pretty common. Look at the 1984, I believe, outbreak in Oregon with, you know, salmonella at a, at a salad bar. Nobody even knew that was a bioterrorism attack until years later when somebody admitted to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. So, it's it's interesting. It's important for writers to think through this, that, you know, if, if you have a um, bioterrorist incident in your novel and you, your terrorist group hasn't announced it and claimed credit and said, hey, this is coming. Ha ha ha. We're wicked. Um, <laughs> essentially, the, the first thing that's going to happen is the people that have been exposed are going to um, get symptoms and they're going to go to the, their doctor, their regular doctor, which is why doctor's offices are so scary for me. Um, and, <laughs> and they're going to um, say, I, I'm coughing. I, I uh, My chest hurts. And they're going to talk about very basic symptoms and the doctor may basically not know what it is. It could be a virus. I'm going to send you home and just drink a lot of fluids and then it gets worse. And then they go to the next level of care. And, and it really isn't until you get a sample that then goes to a lab for di diagnostics, right? To identify what that is. And as you pointed out with the Ebola case, if our first indicator is your travel history, then yeah, having a terrorist group send a bunch of people sick with Ebola into the United States, um, or no, no, because they would have travel history, um, but the people that they were infected that infected them would not have travel history. So that could be interesting. Yeah, it's it's super interesting because um, you know when we're looking at like the medical screening, which to me is really the front line, right? Like we're not going to really know necessarily if there's been an attack or a major outbreak that could be an attack until people go to seek medical care in a lot of situations. But the problem is so many of these organisms are either pretty common, you know, like salmonella, um, or they're just not really seen. So most medical providers don't even have that on their radar. So think about even measles. A few years ago, you know, I, I dealt with a measles outbreak here in Phoenix. Um, most of our physicians in the emergency department had never even seen a case of measles because it had been largely, you know, as close to eradication as we could get it in the U.S., but it was just so, so, so uncommon that they never really even saw a live patient with one before. So things like that are a big problem because if you have an, a rare disease, it's unlikely that a medical provider, especially a non-infectious disease physician, is going to pick up on that because how how do most of them start? Fever, aches, pains, you know, look at Ebola, diarrhea and fever. Right. All of those are such, you know, like <laughs> basic symptoms that there's no indicator outside of that travel history and maybe exposure to someone who you know has Ebola, that is going to be a red flag for anybody. So I, I view when we're talking about preparedness for a biological event, whether that's terrorism or a large scale outbreak, 
I think of all the awesome things and work we've put into it from a public health perspective, but from a healthcare perspective, that is the really big concerning area for me because, you know, not to burst anyone's bubble, but we, you're dealing with private companies. This is a private sector. And since Ebola, there really isn't a lot of incentive for them to keep investing tons of money into preparedness because it was insanely impacting and not sustainable to try to get ready for Ebola in 2014. But I mean, we actually did create the tiered healthcare response network, which I think is really cool. The CDC helped facilitate creating four tiers so that we would have regional and designated treatment facilities around the U.S. so that we would have increased capacity. But those are limited. You know, there's only like 60 treatment facilities and about 10 regional facilities. So if you think there's like about 6,000 hospitals in the U.S., that's not a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And if we actually have, you know, a a no kidding pandemic, like say someone splices influenza with something terrible and it spreads like in the movie Contagion um, very, very quickly, um, you're going to run out of beds really quickly. Totally. And one thing that I, you know, kind of, I feel bad reminding people about, but it is true is that even if we have a lot of hospitals that are aware there's an outbreak going on, our basic infection prevention and control practices in healthcare are not great. You know, the national hand hygiene rate, the last time I saw it was like in the 30%. Um, You know, healthcare workers really struggle to put patients in ICU and use adequate personal protective equipment. And that's a huge problem. So we saw that with like SARS in Toronto, where this was a disease that really spread throughout throughout the city because healthcare exposures, because delays in isolation and poor use of personal protective equipment. And, you know, hospitals really acting as amplifiers for disease for that reason. So when we talk about preparedness and bioterrorism, part of it is, you know, lab efforts, identification of the patients and all of those critical components. But my concern is always like, well, hey, if we have these patients and we don't know about it, there's a real risk that hospitals are just going to encourage the spread of this because, you know, we have very real issues with basic infection control. Yes, I'm very tempted whenever I fly on a plane to wear a mask um, just because I know what happens on planes and oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> but when you wear a mask, you know, it just, it, you don't want to wear one because you don't want to, you know, everyone thinks you might have Ebola or something. <laughs> um, so, well, and, and you know, it's so true because you're just kind of like, well, I want to work to protect myself, but at the same time, everybody's going to stay away from me. So maybe it is working better than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should just do that. But then I'm afraid that maybe the, the um, f- flight attendants won't understand. And then I might be removed from my flight or something as being, you know, a potential bioterrorist. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, our ability to protect ourselves is compromised by people's fear of taking protective measures, right? So if, if your healthcare provider comes in wearing a mask, what am I like dead? Am I dying? Why are you wearing a mask? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and that's, and that's such a real concern because we know that patients in isolation actually are, I don't want to say neglected because that's a strong word, but like they often get um, people coming into their rooms less frequently because it's just, it's a lot of work to put on the PPE and it is, it is a huge burden on the healthcare worker. And we know that negatively impacts the patient sometimes. So it's, it's just an imperfect situation. And I think, you know, when we talk about bioterrorism, um, I, 
just from my own research, my own experiences, I get so frustrated when people think that hospitals have it together because we don't, you know, we are very real vulnerability. And in many ways, you know, it's not a big priority. There was a big study that came out recently where they actually surveyed hospital administrators since Ebola and were like, hey, do you feel more prepared? And yeah, overwhelmingly they did, but a third of them couldn't tell you where their hospital fell on the tiered special pathogens program. And many of them said point blank, you know, there's not a lot of incentive for us to invest in preparedness efforts for infectious diseases because that equipment's just going to sit there. Um, you know, it's very expensive. It costs a lot of money to train staff and there's just, it's, it's an unlikely event. So that kind of mentality I think can be really dangerous too when we, you know, when we're fixated on something like bioterrorism, but we also know naturally occurring outbreaks, like you said, you know, a pan flu are, are a very real possibility and could do just as much damage. Mm-hmm. So let's change the subject a little bit and talk about antimicrobial resistance. I know this is a favorite topic of yours. You've been writing some <laughs> articles about it. In fact, you have argued that it should be included as a global catastrophic biological risk. And I bet everybody's like, what is this thing? Please tell us, what is antimicrobial resistance and why is it so scary? So it's basically the ability for a microbe um, to stop antimicrobials from working. So this really limits treatment. And they, the microorganisms can do this through a lot of different ways. They can like neutralize the antibiotic or actually pump it back out of the bacteria before it even gets into the cell and does any damage. They can even change their outer structure so that the antibiotic can't even attach to them. So antimicrobial resistance is a really fascinating thing because it actually does happen naturally, but our practices over the past decades, you know, have really sped it up. They've really accelerated it. So um, it's, you know, it's a product really of just overwhelming antibiotic usage and agriculture, which I would highly encourage everybody to read Marin McKenna's big chicken book about the use of antibiotics and poultry, because it will make you like never want to eat chicken again. How <laughs> oh, um, great. Thank you. I know, but, but, you know, I will say like, I, <laughs> she does a really good job at not totally scaring you and really encouraging you to just be a better steward of when you eat poultry. Um, but it's, so agriculture was a huge problem because, you know, we used it for decades in that environment, but also medicine, you know, we have, and I say weed, but it's, it's globally have just been really bad stewards of antibiotics and healthcare and medicine and things like medical tourism even come into play. But realistically, when we start just overusing and misusing antibiotics, we just accelerate the rate of which or microbes um, develop resistance to them. So that just starts to really limit our treatment options. You know, there's a new study the CDC put out recently that said, hey, every single year in the U.S., we have like 2.8 million cases of resistant infections. And I think it was like 35,000 people die as a result. And truth be told, that number is probably pretty low because those are the only ones, you know, that we've actually detected and have reported. So this right. is a very, very real scary problem. So I didn't know what the difference between a virus and a bacterium was until I was in my 20s, which is um, actually pretty impressive. Most people don't 
know the difference. Um, but once I learned the difference, because I was studying biological weapons, and that's how I learned, um, I went to my doctor, I think I was sick, I was coughing and whatnot. And she's like, I'm just going to prescribe you with an antibiotic. I'm like, why are you prescribing me with an antibiotic? What, what test have you run to determine that I have a bacterial infection and not a viral infection? Because guess what, folks, your antibiotics do nothing <laughs> for viruses. So it we, is so true. <laughs> and that's what's been happening over the last decade in doctor's offices everywhere. And I don't know how many times I, I can count um, uh, with my friends who still don't know the difference. Well, you need to go get an antibiotic. And went, what for? I don't, I don't think I have a bacterial infection. I, I've looked at my mucus and I know what color it is. Thank you. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So what do we need to do to address this problem? I mean, on one hand, you have bacteria that mutate and they kind of grow resistance naturally. On the other hand, it's our practices that have kind of like made this a, a big, big problem. What do we do? Oh, we have so much work to do. Um, <laughs> so one of the things I think that we're really starting to work on um, you know, within the United States, the CDC launched their antimicrobial resistance like solutions initiative because part of the issue is that for the longest time, we didn't even know how bad the problem was. So the surveillance and detection component is one thing that we're really trying to ramp up on because again, how do you really address the problem if you don't know how bad it is, you know, the scope of it, where we need to start? So that's definitely one aspect. But the other is um, antibiotic stewardship, antimicrobial stewardship. And this is where we focus on medical providers and really being smart about their antibiotic prescribing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think, it was a few years back, I want to say in 2014, there was a study they put out that found, you know, when you go to an outpatient facility, like an urgent care or your just basic um, you know, physician, your medical, your, um, you know, normal provider. And in that one year, they wrote, I think it was like 260 plus prescriptions. 44% of them were for respiratory infections, right? Half of those didn't need any antibiotics. So similar to what you were saying, you know, the natural visceral response is to just provide an antibiotic. So part of this is a really big issue with prescribing habits. But I also think we have a huge issue with the expectation that we get antibiotics and that that is something I know the CDC has been really pushing as an education campaign is saying, Hey, here's the difference between a cold and the flu, but you need to stop asking doctors and, you know, and providing medical professionals to give you antibiotics because you might not need them. And if you take them, you could potentially be making things worse. So I think, there's a huge sociocultural dynamic to this. And it's just really being aware and changing our habits as patients while we also turn our attention to medical providers. So I know, you know, those, those are really big things like for hospitals, especially there's been a lot more attention to what is our antimicrobial stewardship um, efforts that we're doing with, you know, what are, what are the stop gaps we're putting in place to make sure people don't over prescribe or mis you know, misuse antibiotics. But another really big issue is the R and D for antibiotics, antimicrobials, excuse me. Um, there's, it's not a very lucrative field. I, you know, I think it was Pew Charitable Trust that said it's, it's not been since 1984 that we've had a new class of antibiotics created. That's super scary to me. And the truth is that, you know, antibiotics don't, they're pretty cheap for, to pay out. Um, but the development of them is so expensive. So it's just not a lucrative field for pharmaceuticals. And 
you know, there's been so much attention to that recently about how we are trying to address antimicrobial stewardship um, and resistance, but we really can't ignore the fact that we need more treatment options. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of competing factors. Um, you know, bacteriophages are one thing that we've looked at. You know, phage therapy is a really cool potential in the future, but I also just think you know, we need to stop the problem before it happens as it's happening, but also control. It. And that's kind of where I come in, you know, from a healthcare perspective, we really work to rapidly identify and isolate patients with resistant infections. So I, you know, there's a reason why I'm a writer because all of this, my imagination has been going wild this entire time. And I have this very, very scary apocalyptic novel in my head where um, we no longer have ant antibiotics that work. And so we are now exposed to bacterial infection the way um, humans were uh, hundreds, hundred or so years ago, and people are dying everywhere. Yeah, it's like Oregon trails all over again. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. And then we have no beds in the hospitals, and oh yes, quarantine and curfew. Um, it's yeah, yeah. It's, well, and there goes a lot of your elective medical practices, you know, like elective surgeries. Um, you know, C-sections, things like that, where we don't even consider the impact, like even dental surgery. There are so many things that we don't realize um, antibiotics oh, play a really big role. Think about how people have babies today, mostly C-section, right? Yeah, I mean, and I know they've been trying to change that, but C-section is a surgery and you have to have you know, antibiotics prior to your cut time. So if you don't like, uh, oh, we're in so much trouble. We're in so much trouble. This is a great novel, great movie, people. Um, because I, I know, I keep thinking, where is the antibiotic? You know, contagion movie. I want to see that resistance movie because don't get me wrong. You know, the the Nipah virus kind of mix was super scary and sexy. But hey, what is scarier than a post? antibiotic, you know, apocalyptic world. <laughs> and the cool thing too, is you can bring in the pharmaceutical industry, not developing these drugs because they're not um, financially lucrative and all of that. I mean, there's so many layers to the story. For sure. I mean, I think it's kind of scary that we've had to have these initiatives through like there's CarbX that has provided funding and even BARDA has been providing funding to really encourage companies to invest in antimicrobial R&D because it's just, there's no incentive for it. It's not a moneymaker. You're going to pump tons of money into it. And, you know, if you even get to, you know, a phase one trial, which not a lot do, um, you know, it's, it's not going to make you that much money. So I think it's really scary that we have to have all these financial incentive programs to try and get companies to start doing this. Um, it's, it's, really scary. I don't think, I think people realize, you know, they know what MRSA is, you know, methicillin resistant staph aureus, which is a skin bug. You know, I think it's like one in three of us have it now. And that's become so common that people don't really get scared about it anymore. But if you talk to a patient or a family member of one who has had a resistant infection, it is so deeply scary and it's so hard to treat. And those antibiotics, some of those medications really do a number on your system to try and fix the the resistant bug you already had, you know, they have long-term implications in some cases. I mean, there, there, so, was a, there was a time in, in human history where if you cut yourself, you know, it could be a death sentence. And oh, for sure. Antibiotics came in and, and saved, saved us from, from worrying about such things. But, you know, if, if, if we don't have antibiotics anymore, um, I mean, 
thank you for scaring me on this on this beautiful Sunday afternoon. <laughs> I'm so happy. Well, now. and you know what? The funny part is to me, it's like it's such people are like, oh, antibiotics are horrible. I'm like, no, it was an amazing invention. It, it was a game changer for for you know human history. But that being said, we have to be good stewards of these of these inventions that we have of these um, amazing things we develop because clearly antibiotics are a good example of you know, why we can't have nice things. We overuse and abuse them. So we need to be better. <laughs> we can't have nice things ever. We're bad. Well, this has been such a fascinating and also slightly horrifying conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. If um, audience wants to kind of look you up, um, where should they follow you on Twitter? And do you have any articles out you can refer them to? Yeah, definitely Twitter. And um, LinkedIn is always a good place. So feel free free. And, you know, I am always encourage people to message me if they have questions. Is your, I love is your, geeking out with people. <laughs> is your handle Saskia Popescu? Yes. Okay. Okay. And, uh, well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. It was so fun. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.